Um, we're in a series uh, that we call Between Two Storms, and literally it is uh, in this narrative of Mark uh, that is between two storms. We started with the storm series of Jesus uh, asleep in the boat, and we'll conclude in a few weeks with the storm, uh, the disciples in the middle of the sea, and Jesus walking on water. And yet there is this literary theme that is happening at the same time is there's this, this storm that we see, and it's the storm between fear and, and faith. And you see this tension or this dynamic at play. And, and if we're really honest, we find ourselves oftentimes caught in that tension, stuck in that dynamic, don't we, between being paralyzed by fear or being propelled by faith in our lives. And whether it's in the workplace, whether it's at school or friendship, I mean, some of you right now, I just had this thought, is just you're paralyzed by fear relationally because you're so scared to ask that guy or that girl, that dream person, uh, just even to say hello. And you're like, I want to be propelled by faith. Maybe now's your moment, okay? She's three rows ahead, and we're going to have a taco truck a little bit later. Go for it, you know? One person clapped. I think they're, I think they're, you get them, you get them. This morning, what I want to do actually is talk just on one specific thing, one specific reason why I think we get stuck in this tension so often, why we get uh, just caught in this dynamic and, and it feels like we're not moving forward. Uh, and, and I call it the problem the problem with familiarity, just being familiar with something. This last week, I had the great joy to go to my first ever professional hockey game. I couldn't understand for the life of me why San Jose people, Californians, loved hockey. It made no sense to me, and everybody in San Jose, I'm from Santa Cruz originally, everyone in San Jose is like, man, the sharks. And I was like, seriously? We don't even have ice here. You know, it never gets freezing. And everybody's like hockey mania crazy. And I had a friend uh, and his son invite me and my son to go to a hockey game this last week. And by the way, I get it now, okay? I'm like, wow, isn't that great? Have you guys been to a hockey game? Yeah, if you haven't, go. It's amazing. I mean, it is so great, and we go into the arena, and the, the lights are pounding, and there's stuff happening, and you got sharkies shooting cannons, and I mean, it's great. Uh, at one point, I look over, and my son's got a nacho, you know, platter on his lap, and it's as big as his lap, and he's got a soda as big as his head, and he looks up at me and says, Dad, this is the life. And he's right. I mean, it doesn't get any better at seven years old, right? I mean, how could and how amazing is that? And, and then what I love is uh, my friend that took me realized I'm a bit of a hockey novice, right? I don't know a whole lot about hockey, although I, I wouldn't consider myself a hockey novice. I think I'm familiar with it. I, I, I've watched the major movies, Mighty Ducks, you know, I, I, and we just recently rewatched it. And all my hockey knowledge is based on the Mighty Ducks and... I was confused the whole time. I'm like, the flying V, guys, the flying V. All you have to do is the flying V and you'll win. They didn't do the flying V. But my friend, my friend, he leans over to me and asks me this question, knowing that I, I don't really know anything about hockey. He says, Ryan, do you, do you understand how offsides work? Now, I played soccer. I love soccer, love watching soccer. 
Uh, and so I said, well, yeah. Yeah, I know how offsides work. Absolutely. And I'm so thankful that he asked this follow-up question because I assumed I understood and knew what was going on in hockey in the realm of offsides because I saw it in soccer and have it figured out. And he, then he asked me this question, do you know what the blue lines are for? And it took me a minute. I didn't notice any blue lines at the first. You know, I've been sitting in the arena 40 minutes, didn't notice one blue line. I look on the rink, there's two massive blue lines on the ring. I'm like, how did, did I miss that, you know? How did I miss that? And then he goes to explain. He says, okay, so Ryan, when the attacking team comes, they can't enter that section until the puck crosses the blue line. And it's like, oh, okay, that's, so that's how it works in hockey. Cool. And then he explains something else, and it actually took me a while to understand this. And he says, when the opposing, the attacking team, as the puck goes outside that blue line, the whole team has to go outside that blue line. Oh. All of a sudden, the world of hockey meant so much more to me because people were clapping. I didn't understand. They're like, woo! They cleared the puck. I'm like, yeah, good for them. And then he's explaining the power play and what icing is. And all of a sudden, what I thought I knew, I realized I didn't have a clue. And see, this is what I think the problem of familiarity is. It is, I believe, one of the biggest barriers to truly knowing something is thinking we already know. I think one of the biggest barriers for your life and for my life that keeps us stuck where we're at is thinking we already know. We get stuck this way. I mean, I watch it all the time because the implications are so much bigger than a simple hockey game. I just think of the college student that shows up on campus and they're handing out credit cards and you're like, yeah, I know how this works. And you take a credit card and all of a sudden, five years later, you're in a massive amount of debt because you thought you knew how finances worked and now you're declaring bankruptcy at 25 there's actually quite a few people doing that because they thought they knew how it worked and it kept them from truly knowing. I, I see it in relationships all the time. I've experienced it personally in relationships. I've but I see it uh, as a pastor. I get to do premarital counseling all the time, or not so much recently, but a, lot, uh, a while ago. So guys, get busy. Come on. That guy, that girl, okay. It's godly. Okay. But here's one of the things. I've sat down with so many couples that are engaged, that are passionately in love, and just like, woohoo! And as we sit down to do some premarital counseling, they think they already know the secret to having a lifelong love relationship. And so we spend a few weeks together, and it's absolutely wasted because they're the exception to the rule. They're like, yeah, that's not us. No, we're good. See, one of the biggest barriers in life for you and for me, one of the biggest things that hold us back from truly knowing something is thinking we already have it figured out. Well, what about your relationship with God? Uh, what, what about spiritually? I, I, I mean, what about... What about if there really is a God and there really is eternity? What if, what if Jesus really was the Savior of the world? 
See, the implications and the consequences aren't just in the present. They're eternal at that point. Well, you see, the, the problem with familiarity for us as we dive into it is, is that when we become familiar with something, it's so easy to dismiss, isn't it? It's so easy to dismiss and not do further examination. I already got that figured out. I already know. No, 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 I've heard that before. I, I, I got off sides. It fosters this sense of arrival, doesn't it? Yeah, I've been there, done that. Have the t-shirt, thank you very much. I, I mean, growing up, I, I grew up a musician, played music, loved music, and you could always tell the mediocre musicians. Because you'd ask them this question, oh, you, you find out that they play guitar, drums, whatever. Oh, you play guitar, yeah. I'm pretty good. You know, they're terrible. You just anyone who thinks they're good aren't good. I mean, they're like, yeah, I'm amazing. What that meant was they've learned a few chords and maybe a John Mayer song. You know, you ask a great musician, hey, are you good? I'm okay. I really enjoy playing. Here's why because they're a master of their craft, they realize there's always more to learn. And they realize there's always someone out there way better than them. And so there's a humility of knowledge, not an arrival. But when we're familiar, when we think we know, it's easy to dismiss because, uh, hey, I don't need to look further than that. I already got it figured out. It's, it, it causes us to kind of have this sense of arrival. And as a result, we, we, we make these broad assumptions about people and things and places. We, we make assumptions of, well, just because we know something in one specific area, then it translates to be true over here. And we make these broad assumptions about people, don't we? We make these broad assumptions about motives over a tweet or a Facebook or an Instagram because we think we know and we assume we know why they did what they did and as a result, this is what happens at the end of our familiarity. It breeds this sense of contempt of just of just looking at people and feeling a sense of superiority that I'm a better than. And we do this in so many areas of life. And here's 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 the big problem. Because those are all problematic, but let me give you the really big reason why this matters so much to you and why you need to listen up for the next 25 minutes. The biggest problem about the problem of familiarity is this. We often don't know that we don't know until it's too late. Let me say that again because you probably should have wrote that down. We often don't know that we don't know until it's way too late. Because let me tell you, there's countless marriages that are going to counseling when it's far too late because they started out thinking they knew. And by that time, what all they're doing is simply trying to pick up the pieces and move on and move forward and somehow readjust life. There's countless people who thought they knew what their kids needed and pursue academia and sports and experiences. And hey, I'm going to be their buddy and I'm, I'm not going to do what my parents did. Or maybe you liked what your parents did, so I'm going to do-do what my parents did. And I just said do-do, I realized that. 
And then it's too late in their teens and their 20s. And you look up and you finally realize, you know what? They didn't need a buddy. They needed a loving, strong, courageous parent. And they didn't need all those experiences. What they needed was a deep, meaningful relationship. And then it's too late. And what you're trying to do is just simply figure out what's next. I do it with finances. Think about this. Could it be that we even do it with God? Could it be that in the areas that matter most in life, we think we know and as a result we miss out? And could the consequences be far greater for now and for later? See, when we're dealing with God and we ask that question, well, what about God? What if Jesus really is the only way to know the Father? What if there really is eternal? The consequences are so much greater than just a for now, they're forever. And here's what's amazing. When you go back and look in Jesus' day, and you go back and you read the Bible, this isn't a problem that is just isolated to you and to me. It, what, what you'll find so interesting is in the very book that we're reading, the Gospel of Mark, and we've been studying, you'll find that those who are most familiar with Jesus are really unfamiliar with Jesus. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, you'll, you'll hear them asking this question, who is this man? So I just want to take one area I think the, the principle is so deep that you should re-examine every area of your life. But I want to take one area, I believe the most important area of your life, and that's your spirituality, and ask you, ask you if you would really examine where you're at with Jesus. And here's what I know. I know there's a few people here. I understand that some are here and you're, you're a skeptic and you're kind of like, I, I don't know about this. And I just would ask you to honestly examine as we dive in this morning and maybe give God a shot because you think you know, but do you truly know? And some of you are, have, would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus and you're familiar, and you grew up, and you know the flannel graph, you know, pictures of Jonah and Noah and all that, and you can recite verses forward and backwards. And I would just challenge you, you perhaps, maybe, you think you are following Jesus, but could it be? Could it be that you've fallen into the problem of familiarity? Because here's what I find when I search these pages, and especially in the text that we're going to look. Those that thought they knew Jesus somehow missed him along the way. If you got your Bibles, would you open them up to Mark chapter 6? Uh, and what we see here is Jesus coming to his hometown. He's been on this itinerant preaching and healing uh, trip 
He's gone to all these prominent places, and I mean, he's been highly successful. He's got crowds. I mean, guys are taking off work to hear and see Jesus, and everywhere he goes, he's getting mobbed. And then he decides to go to Nazareth, his hometown. And Nazareth is nowhereville, population on a good day, 500. He's been in all these massive areas with major trade routes, and now he's going to his hometown where everybody knows everyone and where everybody's in every other person's business. He's going to his hometown where they watched him grow up as the son of Joseph the carpenter who was his, uh, his um, what am I trying to say, protege, I guess is the word, as, um, as Jesus begins to learn the trade of being a carpenter and the people. Okay. That thought they knew Jesus somehow missed it. Take a look here, Mark 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Jesus wasn't coming home, by the way, just for R&R. He is coming home to be who he was called to be, to, to explain the kingdom of God and his presence here on this planet and how God longs to initiate a relationship with every single human being on the face of this planet. And what I love about this right here is with those he grew up with, with his friends and his family and his neighbors, Jesus didn't assume his friends and his family and his neighbors got it. Jesus was intentional. This would not be the largest crowd Jesus would draw, perhaps the smallest. But his heart so broke for his hometown that he went back. He was intentional. I just think that's some, for some of us, we make this broad assumption, our familiarity is, oh, they know I'm a Christian. They know I'm a follower of Jesus. If, they're, if they want to ask, they could blah, blah, blah. Jesus goes out of his way to make sure and love his family, his friends, his neighbors. And here's what it says. It says, teaching the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Just circle that word amazed. Two times we'll see the word amazed if you're reading the NIV, uh, and it's two different words. This word amazed literally means uh, to be overwhelmed, to be besides oneself, to be confounded. We find it here in this context, as we read a little bit later, it's a negative amazed. They're, they're, they're kind of like, whoa. You know, you, know, you ever had anyone that, that was like, whoa, dude. That's how they were with Jesus. Hey, hey, whoa, hey, hey. And here's what they say. Where did this man get these things? We know who this is. What's the wisdom that has been given him? You know, what are all these remarkable uh, miracles he's performing? Isn't, come on, come on, come on. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Jesus? We know him. And a carpenter in that day was a lot like a general contractor. They did a little bit of everything. And did from uh, stonework to woodwork. And I mean, he's like, isn't this Jesus? Come on. Didn't, didn't he help repair the synagogue? Didn't he help hang your door on your house? We know this guy. He's a blue-collar guy just like all of us. He's, he, he's not one of those city slicker rabbis. He's, he's a hometown homeboy just like us. Isn't this the carpenter? Then it goes on. Isn't this Mary's son? We actually get this little insight, and you see this 
alluded to in the Gospels about Jesus and his growing up. We don't hear much about Jesus and his growing up, but it says, isn't this Mary's son? And, and many commentators and scholars believe that uh, Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, because anyways, you can read the story at Christmas, died at a young age. You, you want to know what Jesus was doing, by the way, from, from pr- probably 13 to 30 he wasn't doing all these weird miracles on the side like some like Gnostic Gospels have purported. You know what he was doing? He was taking care of his family until his family could take care of themselves. He had four brothers. And he was taking care of his family saying, you know what, there's a priority and there's a place and there's this time and I'm not going to rush it and I'm going to be in the backwoods in Nowhereville and I'm going to step into the role that my father left and I'm going to be faithful here in the meantime until my heavenly father tells me it's time. Amen by myself. Where are you guys this morning? Come on. He said, isn't this Mary's son, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Sisters here with us and then listen to this. And they took offense. They took offense word literally means to be put off, repelled. In our culture today, we don't like to take offense, do we? And we kind of have two extremes of people. We have, we have the people who will do whatever it takes to make sure that we offend no one. And then we have people that do whatever it takes to offend everyone, don't we? And, and it seems like there's only extremes in these categories. I can't offend anyone. I can't say that. Oh, what might they think? Or then there's the people, and there's, the, there's Christians, and we know of them. That's probably why so many Christians are hiding, because of the people who just offend people for the wrong reasons and beat people over the head with the Bible and all kinds of stuff. And so we're like, oh, I can't do that. And so no one ever gets to know a true follower of Jesus that loves them radically, fully. Uh, when I was a kid... My dad gave me specific reasons why I could get into a fight. I love that conversation. I can't wait to have it with my boys, you know. Uh, it's like, hey, you know what? There's certain times it is okay. I remember this. My dad sat down. There's certain times it's okay to get into a fight, and there's many times it's not. And, and, he's, and his point was, if you're, if you're protecting yourself, protecting family, or someone else, you'll never get in trouble if you get in a fight for doing those three things. You just need to know that's okay. Now, if you, if you get in a fight for any other reasons, it's going to be trouble. See, there's good reasons and there's bad reasons for people to take offense of you. We always associate the bad. There's good reasons. When you take a moral stand for what's right, when you don't cave into the peer pressure around you and all the guys are going to the strip club and you're going, no, I can't do that. And they're like, come on, you weenie. It's a good reason for guys to take offense of you. When, when you don't step into what's happening around the office and everybody's doing it and everybody's cutting corners, everybody's, I can't do that. When you reprioritize life in the way God has designed it to be and, and at work they said, hey, you know what? You need to spend 70, 80 hours doing this. And you go, no, no, no. I'm putting God first, family second, and then work after that. And you just need to know that's the order. I'll work 50, 60 hours. I get that. It's the valley, but I'm not putting in anymore. It's a good reason to make people offended. There's a bad reason, too. There's a really bad reason. When you're just spouting off your opinions as if they're God's opinion. And we got a lot of people doing that on Facebook. We got a lot of people making all kinds of comments that just need to shut up. Amen by myself. Come on, where are you? 
Seriously. There's all kinds of people saying all kinds of stuff publicly that are defaming the name of Jesus because of their personal opinion. I think in the areas that are gray, there's plenty of areas scripturally that are gray areas that you just go, okay, you know what? That's that's not a reason to, to cause offense. I think just some, if we're talking in the church world, some people are just obnoxious. Come on. They're just, they're just being, you, you can love Jesus winsomely and not be a jerk and not be a jerk about it and be obnoxious to people. See, there's good reasons and bad reasons for people to take offense. And, and we got to judge and begin to go, okay, you know what? We can't be so overly concerned that we don't offend anyone. And yet at the same time, got to assess, okay, we're, we're not just going to go out there and yeah, they're offended. People took offense at Jesus, so you're going to be offended by me and just be jerks. And we see that all the time. It goes on to say, that wasn't even like a big part of the message. I just made it one, sorry. Jesus then goes on to say, he said to them, prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. He's actually quoting common wisdom of the day among his relatives in his home. And listen to this. It says, he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And then listen to this, this sad commentary. He was amazed the second time we see the word amazed. But this, is, this word means astonished. In fact, it's used in the text uh, often to be a literary means of drawing the reader's attention to the significance of the event placed. It says that he was amazed at their lack of faith. And now when it says he could not do any miracles, let me, let me unpack this just real quick. Because what he's not saying is what some people have heard by some like charlatan TV evangelist that says, you don't have enough faith and so you weren't healed. He's not saying that. What he is saying, though, is this. Our experience of Jesus is determined by our approach to Jesus. Your experience of Jesus and how you experience him, if you come to him with stiff arms, he will not force himself upon you. Is determined by our approach. If we approach him as, I, I think I've got him all figured out. I think I got it all down. It determines our experience of Jesus. So, we can close, and on the back of your notes, I just want to do this. I want to ask you this, and we asked it at the very top. Could, could what you think of Jesus perhaps be keeping you from truly knowing him? Because let me just ask you to reexamine. Let me ask you just to kind of take all those assumptions that you have and, and maybe you came in with some superiority of arrival and where you're at. And Let me just ask you, would you just honestly evaluate? Because if those who knew Jesus, who grew up with Jesus, could, could arrive here, we certainly could. Taking a closer look at Jesus, I think one of the areas, and I just put down three, uh, that we tend to think of Jesus is many people think of Jesus or or, or religion, or God, especially as a crutch. And, and if you're outside the camp of religion, and you're outside the camp of Jesus followers, you may say, man, 
Man, Jesus is simply a crutch for the weak, for, for the people who aren't strong enough to get through life on their own, and so they need something to help them get by. And then if we're honest, for those in the church, some of you just simply treat Jesus as a crutch. And you only go to him when life's hard and you're hurting. And so you then go to Jesus, but when life's good, you're like, I'm all good. And you're doing your own thing. But could it be? Could it be that Jesus isn't a crutch, but he is indeed the creator of the universe? But listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.15. It says, the Son, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For, and underline this phrase, in him all things were created. In him all things were created. In him all things were created. He goes on to explain things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Underline this. All things have been created through him, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What if Jesus isn't simply a crutch for the weak, but what if he is the creator of the universe? What what if Jesus made it all? I mean, all that we see and made you. that, That would mean that then everything that's been created is for him, is created by him, and the text says, and is created for him. And so instead of being a crutch, if he is indeed the creator, what it means is instead of life and your life and everything revolving around you, he is the creator and everything is meant to revolve around him. And so life makes sense and works only when we get it right that he is the creator of the universe of all things and we go, you're creator and nothing will make sense and all, you hold all things together and I need you to hold me together. Taking a closer look at Jesus, what if he's not a crutch? What if he actually is the creator of the universe? It has mass implications for a life. Another thing I think we think of Jesus is he's a good man. You know, whether you're inside the camp or outside the camp of Jesus followers, you'd say he's a good man. You know, he said some good things. He, he deserves honor. He's done some great things. He's, he's got some cool sayings, you know, that have still been used today. He's good advice. But what if, what if he's more than a good man? What if he actually is a God man? Notice what Philippians 2, 5 says, And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus saying that in, for us, by the way, as followers of Jesus, we should think and treat people the same way Jesus thought and treated us. We should have this mindset and says this, Jesus, who being, and then box this, being very nature God, being very nature God, Jesus, who is God, first fully God, did not consider equality with God something to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, Fully God takes the nature of a servant, says, being made in human likeness, box that, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. What if he's more than a good man with good advice? What if he's actually fully God? the creator of the universe, and fully man. And in that beautiful yet mysterious union, and I don't fully get it, and I've studied it a lot, and there's all kinds of theologians that got explanations, but what if in that reality, because he is fully God, he could endure and take the full punishment that we deserved of all humanity's race, but because he's fully man, he could stand in our place. 
See, see, the difference in thinking that he's simply a good man is you simply take Jesus as a good man, he's to be honored. If he's the God man, he deserves to be worshiped. If he's a good man, he's someone to learn from. If he is the God man, he deserves our service. If he is a good man, man, you get some good advice. If he is the God man, then we surrender everything. See, what we think of Jesus makes all the difference in how we live today. Taking a closer look, reconsidering Jesus, crutch, creator, good man, God man. And finally, I think, if we're honest, many would fall here, and when we think about Jesus, is that he's a sidekick. You know, we've fallen into this in the Western church that Jesus is my buddy, you know? And, and he is. He's your friend, but he's your sacred friend. And we got, man, I got my buddy, and I'm just Jesus, and, you know, I'm driving along, and Jesus is in the passenger seat, and I'm driving. He's my sidekick, man. I love Jesus. Oh, what's up? And you talk to him, and you're like, yo, Jesus, what's up? And some of you are, you know, like, hey, man, I got my buddy Jesus, you know, and you, you don't say that to my friends because they think you're weird, but you, you say that in the car, and, and you're driving. And, and the reality is, is, is you're driving because sidekicks don't drive. You're driving the car of your life, and you're setting the destination. And instead of allowing God in your life to begin to align with God, you bring God and ask him to align to your life. And Jesus is a sidekick. But what if? What if he truly is Savior? I mean, come on. It's what he claimed. It's what we celebrate every Easter. What if he actually was Savior? Listen to what Romans 5, 6 says. You see, at just the right time, when we're still, circle that word powerless. Christ died for, circle the word ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, circle the word sinner, Christ died for us. You know what's offensive? Those words you just circled. We don't like those words. Powerless. See, you don't need a Savior if you don't need saved. Jesus' sidekick is really nice, and it's really easy because you don't think you're powerless, so you're not at the point where you go, help, I can't do it on my own. The gospel says that things are far worse than you could ever imagine between you and God, that you can't do it in and of yourself, that you're standing before him as one of powerlessness, ungodly, anti-God, that sin has separated you from the God of the universe. And eternity hangs in the balance as a result. See, the gospel is real simple. My condition before a just and holy God, based on what I've done, not what other people have done, has set me in opposition to God. Yet God loved me so much that what his holiness demanded, his love provided in the person of Jesus. 
so that those of us who would go, he is creator, he is the God man, and he is savior. And so as a result, I need a rescuer and a redeemer. Jesus, come into my life. He will come into your life and he'll radically change you forever. And he'll bring new life present and life forever and eternity with him. Could it be? Could it be what we think we know of Jesus is actually keeping you from knowing Jesus? Where, where are you as we, we're just going to close right now and name kind of three people at the top? Maybe you're the skeptic and you came in and you're, you're kind of like, hey man, I, I don't know about all that. That's okay. I would invite you to take a closer look at Jesus. We've been reading through the Gospel of Mark. Don't take my word for it. Go get into the, go get a Bible. We got Bibles right over there. Grab one for yourself. It's free. We're not going to charge you, and we're not keeping track of you. There's no homing device in the Bible. Just grab a Bible, okay? And just investigate for yourself. Go to the Gospel of Mark and read about Jesus and see, could it be that I've made some broad assumptions about him? that I've dismissed him without really examining the facts, that I've lived with a sense of contempt when I really had no justification for it. And some are here, by the way, you're a follower of Jesus. You would claim Jesus, but you really haven't been following Jesus. He's your sidekick. He's your crutch. And in this moment, there is a fresh awareness that he is the God of the universe and he is Savior. And you need to surrender. It is a lordship issue where you go, I am no longer in control of my life. You take control. Be the Lord. Be the king of my life. And you take that into every area of your life. And you go with your work. You go with your sexuality. You go with your finances. You go with your relationships. And you just go, God, every area, you take it. You have control. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And some, you're here and you've never heard the reality that God loves you. And you long, you've been longing for hope, peace, and life. And today is the day of salvation where you go, I need help. Jesus, will you come into my life and make me new? And if you're there, I just want to invite you to pray with me and just have an honest conversation with the God of the universe. Hey, here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm at. I want to start afresh with you today. Let me pray for us. And if you're in that spot where you'd like to start a relationship with God, invite you, I'd plead with you, I'd implore you, be reconciled, be made right. Today is the day. Let me pray. And if, if that's where you're at, Would you just pray with me this simple prayer? Jesus, I thought I kind of had it figured out, but I don't. I believe you are the God-man creator, and I know I need a Savior. I believe you came and died in my place and rose again that I might have life. Will you forgive me and come into my life and make me new? I give my life to you today. And if you just wouldn't mind, if you guys would keep your eyes closed and heads bowed, I just want to 
pray for you. If you made that decision, would you just raise your hand right now? Nobody's looking. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Keep them off just real quick so I can see. That's cool. Oh, cool. God, I just thank you for the men and women who have stepped into a relationship with you today. It says that heaven is rejoicing and their eternity has been forever changed. Heaven has expanded in this moment and we are so thrilled to get to be a part of it. And God, I pray for those who need to take that next step, that you would give them the wisdom to do what they need to do and the courage to do it, even though we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.